million dollar question that I think everybody wants to know, a lot of people want to know, is can people change? Can people change? To put it in biblical terms, you ask, well, can, can God completely transform a person? Can God completely transform someone? And as many of you know, going to Corner Canyon, I, I'm, a, I'm a big movie buff. I watch many, many movies, and I cite a lot of movie references. Uh, and so I'm going to give you the usual suspects. Hopefully I don't give away the ending to you. It's got a good twist ending. But... Um, just saying it's a little old i mean if you haven't seen it, it's kind of like it's been like what 15 years but this is what verbal ken says from the usual suspects about how people can't change a man can't change what he is he can't convince anyone he's someone else but never himself this is a very popular idea you cannot change you can try to pretend but you're really not changing from the inside out and even in the movie like wreck it ralph like a kid's movie says this like this is in kids movies uh, it says, but you, we can't change who we are. The sooner you accept that, the better your game and your life will be. So who's, who's heard someone say kind of like in a bitter kind of sad way, you know, well, some people never change or people never change. Who's heard that? Raise your hand if you've heard that. Yeah, people can say that in like a kind of a, a kind of a, a site of frustration. And this is actually something that our culture promotes and secular psychology heavily promotes. The idea that you cannot change somebody. People that display certain characteristics and have certain preferences cannot change. And I've heard many people say people are biologically born with certain behaviors, preferences that can never change. People on this view are fixed and frozen with regard to their behavior and preferences, they can never change. Many people feel this way. That is actually the secular consensus of psychopaths and sociopaths and other personality disorders is that they were born that way. And I can remember reading a book on borderline personality disorder in graduate school, and this book said that if you have borderline personality disorder, you can never, ever change. This is applied as well to other personality disorders. You can see this in what Business Insider says about psychopaths. There is no cure for psychopaths, and they will never be able to change. If they are in prison, psychopaths can be managed with rewards-based treatment. So the secular outlook here is very clear. There can be no change. There can be no transformation from the inside out. We are fated and fixed to be a certain way at birth. But the question is, is this actually true? And you see, what the Bible and historic Christianity teaches is it's true. People are born predisposed to certain sinful preferences and behaviors. That much is undeniable. Look around. But the Bible also teaches that you must be born again. Born again. And I want to give you just a really extreme example of how this looks practically in someone's life. A real life person, David Wood, who was a diagnosed psychopath. This is his story. It's amazing. It's a true story. You can look it up. Um, David has many uh, videos on YouTube you can check out. Um, but as early as David can remember, he realized he was different than most children. He can remember hearing the news that his dog had died from his mother, and he just couldn't understand why his mom was crying. It's just a dog, after all. He didn't understand the emotions, like why people got sad and felt bad for other people. He didn't understand that. When his close friend died at a young age, he felt weird because he had no emotions 
about it. And one of the things that finally gave him clarity as to what was wrong with him is he had a class on evolutionary biology talking about, you know, developing and evolving. And he had come to the conclusion that maybe he has arrived at a higher level of consciousness, a higher level of evolution to where he's not held down by these petty rules and emotions like other people. He's beyond that. And it's interesting, David, at this time was a devoted atheist as a child. He didn't believe that God existed. He didn't think God existed. Now, David had a wonderful father who never did anything terrible to him. But he wanted to prove on one Thanksgiving morning that he was truly above all emotion and all laws of morality. He truly had evolved to a higher state of thinking. So what he decided to do is sneak into his father's bed one early Thanksgiving morning and bash him in the head with a hammer multiple times. Luckily, fortunately, he was sent to a mental institution after that and then shortly after jail. His father, by the grace of God, survived with some brain damage. Now, hearing this, she might think a guy like this is completely hopeless, without any hope at all. But in jail, he met a Christian named Randy, who was, after many conversations with David, he proved to him that Christianity was true. David, after many months of arguing with Randy and debating him, trusted in Christ. And when David got out of prison after five years, he, he went to college and he started passionately witnessing others about Christ. There was a real transformation here. And many have come to Christ through David's witnessing. He has a, a keen ability and intellect to prove Christianity with reason and evidence. And most notably, the, the late Nabil Qureshi came to faith through David's witnessing. And an agnostic girl he met, he convinced to trust in Christ who became his wife, who God worked through to is his wife. And now this guy has a big family. He has a PhD in philosophy. He specializes in defending Christianity, presenting the gospel. This guy went from prison, a psychopath, to being a PhD evangelist. So, yeah, it, if David can change, anyone can change. Or as Rocky would put it at the end of the fight with Ivan Drago, Rocky IV, if I can change and you can change, then everybody can change. My favorite lines from Rocky, sorry. Too many. <laughs> it's cheesy, but you know, it feels good going down, right? You know? <laughs> Very cheesy. <laughs> so then, how do people change? How do people go from being at a state of rebelling against God to loving and obeying God? And the answer we're going to see if I let a word called grace, the grace of God and reflecting on the mercies of God. And we see this in Romans uh, 12 verses 1 through 2. It's the word of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. So Paul is, the appeal here, the Greek is begging. He's begging them. Begging these Roman Christians to present their whole lives as a sacrifice to God in Christ. That's what he's pleading with them here. Well, how's he motivating them to do this? Is he saying, okay, hey, you've got to present your bodies as a living sacrifice or else to hell you go. You're going to hell. If you do not listen, uh, you know, you're going to hell. You've got to do it or else. 
Or is he saying, hey, you know, you got you to gotta, you gotta present yourself as a living sacrifice to get the best heavenly stuff you can get, the highest stuff, highest heavenly reward you possibly can earn or achieve. That's why you got to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Or how about this? You got to present your bodies as a living sacrifice or else you're going to lose your salvation, right? I mean, you know, I remember these scare tactics when I was a kid, you know. Yeah, well, would you, do you want, to not, you want to be sinning or not presenting yourself as a living sacrifice, right? When Jesus comes back and you get, you're, not, you're not raptured, you know? Those kind of fear tactics. And that's not used here at all as a motivation to drive people to follow Christ. Paul does not use fear tactics to get people to obey God's law and his, his will for our lives. You see, Paul's primary way of motivating these Roman Christians has nothing to do with threats of hell or, you know, this better promise of better heavenly stuff or levels of heaven. What he says is, I beg you, therefore, by the mercies of God. By the mercies of God. The therefore is there for a reason. Right? He's connecting it to the previous mercies. This is granted by scholars. The previous uh, mercies in Romans 3 through 11, all the amazing things we've heard about the gospel and how we are loved in Christ. That is what he's appealing to. In Romans 3, he says, yeah, you're all messed up and you all need Jesus. And so he's offering this, these mercies to fallen train wreck sinners like you and me. And so what, what are the mercies that we've gone over? We spent, I mean, I think we've been a year through Romans 3 through 11. So I'm going to review here. What are the mercies he's referring to? Just a recap, kind of give you a, a brief of what's happened so far. So he's saying, by the sacrificial life of Jesus, we are saved, justified, and forgiven. All we need to do is trust in him. Romans 3 says that, right? And it goes on to Romans 4, that God will declare you righteous, even though you're a wicked and ungodly God will declare you righteous. And we are righteous because of the righteousness of Jesus. Romans 5 indicates that. And it is impossible for God to ever count your sin against you. Romans 4, 5 through 8 says that. And it's impossible to out the coverage of God's grace. When our sin is great, God's grace is greater. And that through faith in Jesus, we have peace with Him. And that means we have 24-hour unhindered access to God in Christ. God's love has been poured out by the Holy Spirit. And God loves us even when we hated Him. When our sin, when our sin gets bad, God's grace is even better. And we have been baptized, united in Christ. We are not under law, but under grace. We are adopted sons and daughters of the High King through the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit prays, intercedes for us, and is working out everything for our good. We are eternally loved and chosen by God before the foundation of the world. He will never stop loving you. His love and acceptance for you is unlimited. And that is because nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. Now there are some mercies right there. Those do not sound like threats or obey or else. That sounds like unconditional love right there. So Paul uses the grace of the gospel to motivate people to follow the law. And this is not like a one-off that Paul does. This is a consistent pattern that Paul has in Colossians and Ephesians. He uses the same gospel logic here. He says, you've been justified, you've been saved, you've been redeemed, you've been loved by God. Therefore, do this. This is kind of a law gospel logic here. He says, he gives the gospel and then he says, follow this. That's what the, the primary means of motivation Paul uses here. Just to give you an example, he does this in Ephesians when he talks about that we are loved and cherished in Christ before the foundation of the world and we're saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. And he says this in the same kind of reasoning, the same structure as Romans. Gospel, grace, love, and then therefore your lives should look like this. 
Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, same logic, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a worthy manner or manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Again, whenever there's a there, you have to ask why, it's, why is it therefore? And these therefores are to connect the gospel to these commands, these laws, so that we can be transformed and motivated by God's great love for us. So then in Paul's mind, inspired by the Holy Spirit, what transforms us? Well, it's clear, the gospel. And this is why we as Christians, we don't move beyond the gospel. We move deeper and deeper into the gospel because that produces growth and transformation in our lives. This is how God changes us fundamentally and is, and is different than anything else in the world. You see, the world, you look around, people are, are really motivated in, in workspace religions and in jobs or whatever it is. People are, are motivated a lot of times by fear. You know, if you don't do certain things, there's kind of this looming threat over you. This is going to happen bad. This is going to happen bad. And the, and the problem is we take those fear-based uh, approaches and, we, and we, we, we put it on top of our relationship. We apply it to our relationship to God. And then what happens is we become, uh, we become drained and ineffective in our spiritual walk. And this is how all man-made religions operate. All man-made religions say, hey, you've got to clean up your life. You're going to hell. That's what you got to do. All man-made religions say, hey, if you don't do what you're supposed to do, if you don't act worthy and obey and be good, you're not going to get the best stuff. You're not going to get nirvana, this best result, or whatever it is. So they threaten salvation, rewards. This is how they operate. If you don't keep the rules, you're in trouble, buddy. So in other words, man-made religions are the opposite of the gospel. They give commands and laws that no one can keep perfectly because we're all train wrecks. No one can be good even for 10 minutes. We all fall apart. We're all sinners. And so they give these impossible demands, do this, do this, do this, and then finally you'll be accepted. You never can do it, so you just, you have to either, you know, just trick yourself or feeling that you're pulling it off when you really are not. So these fear-based approaches don't work at all. Here's a problem. I think Tim Keller documents this very well in his work on this. You see, fear has this amazing ability to cause you to do great feats at first. But you see, over the long haul, what fear does to you is you just kind of get numb to it after a while. You kind of drain, it's a draining numbness to fear. We don't care anymore. We just get drained and burned out. So you, what you'll see is in fear-based religions, you have these short spurts of obedience and recommitment while all the while lacking long-term consistent growth. Because a, a workspace religion wears you out. It provides no spiritual rest for your, your soul. So you're striving and achieving and you're just, you just want to give up. You want to throw in the towel. You're exhausted and burned out. Another problem with fear-based religions, all fear-based religions have a line. It's workspace so, and, and fear-based. So they have this line that if you do something really bad or you sin too much, you somehow cross that line. And when you cross that line... There ain't no going back. Problem is, no one knows where that line really is. It's kind of vague and amorphous. And so you try to repent, but hey, you know, maybe you crossed the line already, so there's no point in repenting. So repenting becomes this, like, oh, is this really going to matter? Am I, is this really going to get me back in God's good graces? Is this really enough? And so it becomes, rather than a sweet thing that the gospel offers, repentance becomes a bitter thing, a sad thing. Uh, is this really worth it? I mean, it's no good anyways, because I may have already crossed that line. I don't know. Maybe I'm too far gone. I've heard a lot of people say that to me out here. I can't come to church today. I'm too far gone. Well, there's, there's no place where God's grace cannot reach you. It always can reach anybody, the lowest of the lows. Psychopaths, anybody. 
So fear-based motivation always leads to this bitterness and despair because yeah, you have this feeling like, okay, yeah, all right, I'll have to be good here, you know, and if, I, if I'm good, something good's going to happen to me, God's going to reward me, and, you know, but if something bad happens, you're like, oh, man, maybe I did something wrong here, what's going on? And then you think, well, maybe I have some secret sin or maybe I'm doing something I'm not aware of and God's punishing me, and so it kind of brings this confusion to your relationship with God. It brings despair to your relationship with God because maybe you're committing some sin you're not aware of. Maybe I'm, not, maybe I'm doing something wrong here or maybe God just hates me. And so it brings this fear, bitterness aspect to your relationship with God. It's not healthy. And one thing, this is last but not least, but fear-based religion promotes selfishness. It doesn't produce a self-giving heart. It produces selfishness. Why are you doing good works? To get the, the highest heavenly stuff, to get the best stuff. I'm doing good works because I'm trying to save my skin. I don't want to go to hell. I'm trying to do this. So what's it about? Me, 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 me. It's all about you avoiding punishment or getting reward. And so it, it's really a selfish intent. I'm going to help that old lady across the street because, you know, maybe I'll get me good points with the, with the big guy upstairs, you know. People say that kind of stuff all the time. And so it just, it's, it's just, it's a selfish motivation. Because the gospel message produces the opposite of this living in fear. It produces love. It produces security with our relationship with God. And the reason why we try to obey God is out of love and thankfulness for what he has already done for us in Jesus Christ. Now, people hear this and they, because they're so used to living in fear, because they're so used to a workspace system and living in constant fear and insecurity with God, they don't even understand this type of thinking. It's confusing to them. It's bewildering to them. And I think a concrete, practical illustration from Tim Keller really will help repicture our relationship with God and understand our, how, why we should have an attitude towards, of gratitude towards God and how a healthy relationship. And I think a father-son analogy is apt. So I'm going to read this from Tim Keller. Imagine a father watching his son play baseball for his team, having spent hours in the yard teaching him batting techniques. This father already loves his son fully and completely. He's completely accepted. If his son forgets his father's instructions and strikes out, it will in no way lessen his father's love for him or his approval of him. The son is assured by his father's love regardless of his performance, regardless of his performance. But the son will still have to hit a long, um, will still have to, will, will still long to hit that home run. Not for himself to gain his father's love, but for his father because he is already loved. If he doesn't know his father's love, his effort will be for himself to win that love, to win that acceptance. But because he knows his father already loves him, his efforts are for his father to please him. Just because the boy loves his father because his father first loved him. I mean, we know this intuitively in our relationships. We know this, that a father who, you know, who yells at his son and doesn't love his son because he didn't perform well in a baseball game because he struck out, we would, we would all recognize that as an, as an abusive, unwell father. He said, something wrong with that guy. He's like, man, he's, he's not giving love and acceptance to his son because he struck out in a game or he didn't do well in a sporting event. I mean, what kind of father is this? And it's so interesting to me that that's, we just naturally apply that view of God to us. 
you know, this man-made religion kind of perspective, we just apply that game like God's some you know, weird dad that doesn't like his son until he does well. That's not healthy. That's not a healthy father, and God is good, and he does not treat us that way. Now, here's the thing. If the father doesn't love the son, then the son is doing it for himself, right? Because he's trying to, to, to hit a homer. He's trying to, to do really well so that he can earn that acceptance, earn that love from his father, and so he can feel finally whole. But you see, that's, that's all messed up because the Bible teaches that God loves us and that motivates us to love him. It says in 1 John, we love because he first loved us. And you see, this is the only way we can be a living sacrifice to God is by the unconditional love and grace of the gospel. Because any works-based, fear-based system is not going to produce a living sacrifice. What it's going to produce is a selfish sacrifice. So, we are, so in our lives, we are to reflect the sacrifice of God because He has already fully and completely and totally sacrificed everything for us first. Now, we don't offer a bloody sacrifice at a temple anymore. We don't do that. You know, thank God. I love animals. It would not be good. Uh, but because we are the temple of, of the body of Christ, we're the temple body of Christ, we offer sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices by how we live, how we follow Christ. And the Bible interestingly says that we're all priests. And we are all part of a priesthood through faith in Jesus Christ. All believers, anybody who trusts in Christ is a part of the priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices. It's not just my opinion. That's directly what the Word of God has to say in 1 Peter 2, 4-5. through 5, As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones, like stones in a temple, being built up in a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Holy priesthood. If you believe in Jesus, you're part of a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So yeah, the Apostle Peter confirms what, what, what Paul is saying, that all believers are priests, men and women alike. We don't offer bloody sacrifices anymore because Jesus already did that for us on the cross. We are to be living sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices. We don't need blood anymore. Jesus has fulfilled all of the Old Testament law for us. And that means that, if that's true, that means our whole lives are to be that of worship. Our, all of life is worship in that sense. If our whole lives are to be living sacrifices, our whole lives are to be that of worship. A sacrifice is something they would do in Old Testament worship. So this is how all of life is worship. Now, I say that, I want to be clear as I can, because people can take that in weird directions. The Bible does mention and requires that all believers have corporate worship together every single Sunday. And we hear the gospel, we hear the gospel uh, preached, we see the gospel displayed to the Lord's Supper, we uh, encourage and worship together, we have a unique experience worshiping together as a body of Christ. The Bible teaches us over and over again that there's a unique sense to corporate worship. And that's taught all throughout in Corinthians and the book of Acts, that the the earliest Christians gather together every Lord's Day Sunday. And there's no category in the New Testament for a person who is Christian who doesn't go to church and doesn't participate in corporate worship. It's not even a category in the Bible. It doesn't mention it, nor does it exist. But just because we go to church on Sunday, here's the other end of this people struggle with. It doesn't mean that we forget about God Monday through Saturday. 
No, Monday through Saturday is to be lived as an act of worship as well. God is not just some, you know, okay, Sundays I'm going to go to church, you know, smile, shake hands, oh, hi, you know. But, you know, Monday through Saturday, I'm going to be a brutal businessman. I'm going to crack skulls and take names. Writing checks and snapping necks. I'm coming for, you know. Sunday, oh, it's so great to see you. Sweet tender mercies. Monday through like Saturday, it's like, I'm going to get them. And I'm going to crush them. I'm going to make some money. You know, that's all that matters. No, that's not how it works. Our whole lives are to be a living sacrifice. Not like we're going to be like some maniacs and just like uh, kind of compartmentalize. I'm going to be really sweet and sappy on Sunday, but a brutal, relentless businessman Monday through Saturday. Greedy and brutal. That's not how it works. No, God is part of our lives. Every day of our lives. Every day is a living sacrifice. Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. You cannot compartmentalize the Lord. He is Lord over all, every aspect of our lives. And what is amazing is that Paul not only says it's the right thing to do, which it obviously is. God's the greatest good, so it's right to give him honor, glory, and praise. But he also says, interestingly enough, it is the rational and logical thing to do. It is reasonable to do this. I want to read this verse again. We might skip over it, and you, it, it's a little obfuscated by the ESV translation, but I want to look at this here. Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The Greek here for spiritual, for spiritual worship, is uh, logiktos, which is where we get the, the word in, in English for logic. Logic. Greek words here, you know, the Bible was, was, uh, was written in Koine Greek. We can translate it. We know what it means. The regular use of this Greek word so interestingly is thoughtful, reasonable. And if you look at the Young Literal Translation, which I'm going to have put up on there, Young literal translation in Romans 12 and translates it in this more kind of way. It says, I call upon you, therefore, brethren, through the compassions of God, to present your bodies a, a sacrifice, living, sanctified, acceptable to God, your intelligent service. So the translators here put the intelligent as, as spiritual. It's, it's intelligent. It's reasonable. And then the King James Version just out and says it. I'm going to read this one, too. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable, reasonable, it's logical, service. So th this is the view I land on. It's held by many scholars. And what this means is that you don't have to sacrifice your intellect to follow Jesus. Rather, Jesus enhances your thinking the way you processing. Paul, in the next uh, verse here, says that coming to Christ and, and growing in Christ is a renewal of your mind. But why does it make sense to offer our whole selves, uh, everything we are, to God? Why does it make sense to be a living sacrifice? Why is it logical? Well, it makes sense for us to offer this to Jesus because... Jesus has come and fully sacrificed and fully satisfied everything for me. More than you can understand or even comprehend, by his sacrificial death and life, all your sins are forgiven. 
You will, you will never have a sin that is held against you from God. God will wipe your slate clean. He will declare you righteous if you trust in Christ. He has unconditionally accepted you and loved you in Christ. He cares about you. He never gives up on you. He will always be there for you. You are never alone and never unaccepted by God if you trust in Jesus. He is always there for you no matter what. No matter what you're going through this morning, He is there for you. And so you don't need anymore to take from people and be selfish and needy anymore because all of your resources are endlessly in the reserve of Jesus Christ and what he's earned and merited for you. Not every interaction and relationship have to, has to be transactional anymore. You can give of yourself freely without expecting anything back because Jesus has already given you everything freely and everything back by his life and death. You don't need to wait around for people to love you in order for, them, for, you to love, uh, for, for you to love them back. You don't have to wait around for them to love you first. That's why the Bible says to love your enemies. You can love them first because God loved you first. We love because He first loved us. You can give wildly as wildly as a giving tree. You don't need to take, take, take from people anymore. You have to always get something from somebody, always scheming on how to get everything from everybody. You can't do that. No, because Jesus has freely given you everything. Everything. Love, acceptance, the best relationship, no matter what happens with the living God of the universe. And on top of all of that, the more you give and the more you sacrifice, the more deeper connection you have in God and Christ. The, the, more, the more deeper you go into knowing Jesus more and finding a deep and satisfying joy for your soul going closer to closer to Jesus by becoming a sacrifice. He was sacrificed everything for us, so we follow Jesus by being a living sacrifice in how we live day by day. That brings us closer to the heart of God, brings us deeper joy rather than holding on to things like Gollum, grasping on to everything we can. Matthew 16, 25, 26, Jesus puts this in really amazing terms. For whoever would save his life will lose it. If you try to hold on, grasp onto things, give me this transactional kind of thinking, consumeristic thinking, you're going to lose your life, lose your soul. But whoever loses his soul or life for my sake will find it. Giving, loving, not expecting anything back. That's how you find true love and acceptance. That's how you find uh, a deeper relationship is a better way of putting it with Christ. He says, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus' whole point here is being a taker and being selfish actually harms you. It doesn't help you, it harms you. It's soul draining, not soul giving. It's life taking, not life giving. We find greater joy in this life giving rather than taking. That's why the most miserable people, the most upset people, are the most selfish people ever, and they're miserable to be around. No one wants to be around a selfish person. And you see, the mercies of God, says Jesus here, is given to you. You have everything you already have in Christ. Eternal life, vindication, acceptance from God. And He is working out every detail of your life right now for your good, ultimate good. So you don't have to one-up people all the time and be better than everybody else. Because Jesus is already better for you. You don't need to get anything from anybody else because Jesus has already given you everything by his life and by his death. He has given me all that I really need, which is acceptance and love and a relationship with God in Christ. And so this is a gospel logic which he uses here to utterly transform us and in a way, you know, that the world does not think. The world is 
take, take, take. Consumer, consumer, consumer. Get this, get this. Transaction, transaction. That's how the world is. And Paul presses against this worldly thinking in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. People read that and they go, well, I got to be good, acceptable and perfect. No, it's saying the will of God is good acceptable and perfect. Not that you have to be perfect because you're not perfect. Jesus is perfect for you. But that the will of God is good, acceptable, and perfect. Now, people read this verse. says, do not be conformed to this world. What people have understood this to mean is that, well, I guess that means I got to throw out all my secular movies or something. You can't watch any. You only have to watch Christian movies, which actually is a pretty big sacrifice because they're usually terrible. <laughs> Let's be honest, right? Like that is like people think, oh boy, I gotta, I gotta, you know, I can't watch Braveheart or any movies at all. You know, I gotta only watch Kirk Cameron. Um, <laughs> that's what I'm stuck with here. You know, you don't want to be conformed to the world, so you're watching Kirk Cameron movies and low special effects, be acting. Um, just being, on, I mean, I like Kirk Cameron. Don't get me wrong. Gosh, look at bagging on Kirk Cameron up here. Um, you, know, you know, hey, you're driving your car. You can't listen to secular music. You got to listen to K-Love all the time. Like, if you don't listen to that in your car, you're not a Christian. Otherwise, you listen to that secular music. You're going to be conformed to the world, right? That's what people think. Or, you know, don't be conformed to the world. That means, you know, that I can't smoke or drink or dance and chew and go with the girls that do and get a tattoo. You know, you can't do any of that. You know, it's all that kind of stuff. But that's not what Paul has in mind here. There's nothing to do with that. It has to being conformed to the world, a selfish, self-consumed with yourself, transactional taker, and not a sacrificial giver. Not being a living sacrifice for Jesus. To be a follower of Christ is then to have an opposite of a consumeristic perspective on life. Relationships we have with others, our family members in church, we're to have a perspective of self-giving and self-denial, not a taker. And we, you know, we do this, we focus on the gospel that Jesus perfectly denied himself for us so that he could love us forever and ever. It, it just, it, he just did, he gave us everything. We just, we're naturally motivated when someone gives you something amazing to just want to give back. You want to get back to what the great gift of grace he's given us. And when we hear the gospel of God's grace, it transforms us and radically changes us from a self-centered, self-consumed way of thinking. And it, it changes us to be self-giving. It transforms us. And this is why Paul says, he brings us in here, says about the renewal of, of the mind. It's a renewal of the mind. It was so interesting. I was looking at this in a Greek lexicon. Uh, in, the, in the Greek word, according to Danker's uh, Greek lexicon, uh, for renewal of your mind, this is people can relate to this language more easier or much, much better. A makeover of the mind, a makeover of the mind. And uh, it is a makeover in terms of how we think, we reason about everything, how we view life. And this is, this is a, the, precisely the kind of change I had when I became a Christian, and I, you know, and I continued to grow in that as a Christian, try to renew my mind. But when I was a non-Christian, I have to tell you, I was, I was a wrestler in high school and college, and I was a, way you would describe me is I was a brute that loved fighting and joking. The uh, only, the one thing I hated to do more than anything was to read and think. I hated those things. I was entirely selfish, angry, atheist, agnostic. I was so self-absorbed that even my Christian friends struggled to be around me at times, frankly. Uh, 
This is what one of my uh, best friends, uh, Steve Gutman, said about me um, when I was a non-believer. He said this to me. He says, I'm so thankful we're friends because I would hate to be your enemy. He said this because I'm so brutal and vindictive as a non-believer. So everything, uh, so everything about me, I hated thinking, I hated, if you talked to me about anything deeper intellectual, I would get angry. I'd get mad at people with frustration. And the only book I read, because I was skated through high school because I was a good wrestler and I, I had RSP stuff, so I was just skated through high school. I didn't have to do any work. It was really easy for me because I was uh, quite good at it so the teachers would help me pass through. The only book I re remember reading, I didn't didn't read any books was Alien versus Predator um, and you know the sad thing is my mom read like half of it to me that's what kind of level I was at and so you know I mean you know it was just it was I got a 2.0 in high school and that barely they would keep my GPA at a 2.0 just so I could wrestle because if you got below 2.0 you couldn't wrestle so and it's, it's it's amazing what a what a what a brute I was and you know, after college I mean many, many of you don't know this about me but I started training in MMA and doing cage fighting professionally I was trying to train to be a professional cage fighter you know like UFC kind of stuff. I was working towards that. Um, my friend Steven says, you know, watching your story is like watching uh, <laughs> Stone Cold Steve Austin become a priest. It's really weird, you know, because that's kind of how I was, a brutal person. But uh, as you can tell, my poor, poor, poor friend Steve sat me down to a debate. I probably had enough of my antics and how brutal I was. Sat me down to a debate <clears throat> between... Um, Greg Bonson and an atheist, and I heard the evidence for Christianity when I was 21 years old, and uh, I, hearing Greg Bonson debate, it finally clicked in my head, just the whole Christian message and the evidence for Christianity, and that I was trying to run from God and all these things, and, and I, I trusted in Christ for my salvation. And for once in my life, things just clicked, you know, it was like a renewal of my mind, it was clear with purpose. And I started uh, reading through the entire Bible and reading and devouring books on philosophy and theology. I, I never had read books or even paid attention in class. If you ask me about like all the states in the United States, I don't even know what that is because I didn't listen. I didn't listen to any of my teachers. I just skated right through. So you notice if I'm like Mr. Magoo and other topics, it's because I didn't listen in high school at all, like ever. I only listened in college because I became a Christian when I, when I uh, was in college. And I, my mind was clear and I could read books and I studied all of these things. And um, went to graduate school in philosophy and theology and I got A's and B's. And I had no more interest in cage fighting anymore because I was consumed with wanting to learn about Christ and grow in my relationship with Him and tell others about Christ and help others. And you see, when I came to Christ and got the gospel, it not only saved my soul and my body and everything, but it saved my mind. It saved my thinking. The way I thought about things. And... Um, you know, I wasn't the only person who noticed this. I was talking to Steve, my friend, this morning. He's notorious for making really bad wedding speeches because he gets really nervous. And, you know, it was, I had all these pastors at my wedding, you know, at me and Laura's wedding about uh, nine years ago. And, you know, they're all speaking eloquently and they're amazing speakers. And Steve doesn't speak very well in front of others. And I don't remember anything they said because, you know, I was probably too enchanted with how, you know, memorizing their, mesmerizing their speaking was. But I remember something Steve said and, you know, he, it was, it was said very directly, and I, it stuck with me. So I noticed, uh, you know, I just, he's like, I got to see the greatest transformation. And you came from a guy who hates reading, a brute, you know, kind of angry maniac, to somebody who's like calm and rational, loves to study the Bible, and has all these verses down like at the tip of your finger. And I've never seen anybody make such a transformation. He's like, it's like a miracle has taken place in your mind. 
And you see, that's what the gospel can do for you this morning. You don't have to give up your mind to follow Jesus. Jesus saves your mind. He saves your thinking because Jesus is the Lord of rationality. And the life-giving character of Jesus will also transform you to not be a transactional taker, but a self-sacrificial giver, to be a living sacrifice because he has completely forgiven you and given you everything in him. He's all you need and he's all you'll ever need. And so if you trust him this morning, you will be saved, body and soul, mind and soul for all eternity in him. Let us pray.